Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. I'm Jules Evans and I'm the author of the uh, last book was called The Art of Losing Control, A Philosopher's Search for Ecstatic Experience. And I just brought out a little book about me going off and trying... Uh, this psychedelic potion called ayahuasca in the Amazon, which has become popular with, um, you know, feckless spiritual seekers like me. And I'm here with my friend Mark Vernon. Hi, Jules. And it's nice to talk because I've got a book out called A Secret History of Christianity, Jesus, The Last Inkling and the Evolution of Consciousness. And I think there's a link because I think this sense of inner life and the development of our perceptions of the world has rather fallen off in modern Christianity. Um, and I'm interested when people like you do these feckless things to almost try and make some kind of contact back with that experience of being in touch with the inner life of all things, mm-hmm. um, cosmos, nature, gods, yeah. God, yeah, not yeah. just our own kind of lost inner life. So I remember first meeting you um, eight years ago, maybe. Uh, you were doing a talk at the School of Life, and at that point... You were uh, kind of you. You had been a vicar, and you left the church, and you become an agnostic, and written books about agnosticism. And like me, you got very into Greek philosophy, as a kind of alternative uh, way of life, way of taking care of the soul. Um, and so we we had quite similar kind of paths then, because my first book was about ancient Greek philosophy as well, and how people can turn to it. Um, and it feels like while you've been researching this book you've been kind of drawn back, found your way back to some kind of slightly closer relationship with Christianity. Um, I mean, you're, you, you're, your partner's a vicar as well, so you're never kind of completely... But it seems like you personally, within your soul, have found more a way slightly back into it, perhaps into a more kind of mystical type of Christianity. Um, tell me about that. Yeah, thank you. I think that's true. Um, and I think at least two things have made the difference to me. Um, one is... Um, rediscovering a way of talking about mystical Christianity, by which I mean the sort of inner life of Christianity, the wellspring. As Meister Eichhardt puts it, um, the most important thing about Christianity is not actually the incarnation that happened 2,000 years ago, but what that unleashed for all of us, and it's the incarnation that's happening now that really matters. And I think that one of the things that certainly in modern Christianity um, has sort of quietly put people off, there's lots of loud things that put people off about the church which we all know about but a more subtle thing but I think a more devastating thing ultimately is that it presents Christianity as something that's done to you that you've got to sort of say yes to somehow kind of get into your head believe um, rather than something that can emerge from within you and that can be really part of your own journey and that you Mm -hmm. can own. How did Owen Barfield um, who your book's about, um, how did that help you to that? I mean, so I know a bit about him. I read your book and I loved it. And so he, I, most people will know that, may, maybe some will know that he was one of the inklings along with J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. But how did he help you to this kind of more, I guess, spiritual sense or, or something m- more sympathetic relationship to Christianity? In some ways, what he did was he gave me an account of the figure of Jesus 
that I could felt I could really own at last. I mean, I'm one of these odd liberal Christians that um, finds the figure of Jesus quite an awkward character because I never really felt I had like a direct personal relationship with Jesus, as some yeah. Christians will testify. Mm. Um, and also, um, whilst I kind of understand doctrines like the Trinity, and I, I do get that it's supposed to represent a social nature of reality and so mm -hmm. on, but that too somehow still felt at a distance from me. So yeah. I could never really inhabit it. But what Barfield, I think, showed actually through his interest in words and how words are what he called fossils of consciousness. So you can show how human inner life perceptions have changed over millennia. Um, what he showed, I think, is that Jesus was so important, certainly around the Mediterranean, mm. because he kind of brought together and a perception of what it was to be human that was unfolding from the ancient Greeks mm. and I think actually from the Hebrew prophets too. Mm. Um, he kind of brought it together. People saw it crystal clear, as it were, um, in his life and then when reflecting upon his life. And then that launched this kind of new dispensation that became, well, first of all, late antiquity, then medieval Christianity. Mm. So seeing Jesus as a figure um, that in history, which of course is quite a Christian thing to do, mm -hmm. but really to see Jesus making a difference in history that is part of not just, as it were, um, my salvation in some sort of external sense, um, like I'm in trouble unless I get Jesus, um, but um, as something that um, is part and parcel of my inner life. Um, I think Paul, you know, St. Paul got onto this when he talked about being co-workers, working out our own salvation, when he realised that he was taking on the mind of Christ. Mm -hmm. He was embedded in this unfolding. Mm. And for various reasons, we don't have that so keenly now. Mm. I think, you know, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, Scientific Revolution, uh, where we've grown to distrust inner life. Mm. And I think, again, you see it a lot in Christianity, the emphasis on apologetics, trying to prove it, almost as if Christianity was some sort of physics. For me, that's completely um, mistaken. Mm. Um, maybe it's a sort of peripheral activity, a secondary activity you have to do, but it was not rooted in the wellspring. Would you say that you've been in search of some sort of inner experience that feels like a wellspring of life or feels like a, a sort of vitality mm. that you can live within? Yeah, I think um, I've been searching for um, wholeness and a sense of uh, connection to myself, to others, and to God. And I started off like, well, I was, you know, very much helped by ancient Greek philosophy, but I felt it was too, after a while, after a few years, too rationalist and too individualist. I, I've been initially healed from a period of emotional, you know, whatever problems when I was uh, a teenager by like a near-death experience um, which was like a connection to some higher power after a, a bad accident so I knew that there was something more than rationality that could be very healing and I had a very strong sense of some something beyond the human or at least beyond the everyday which can be massively hugely healing for people so after writing this book about ancient Greek philosophy, I went, I, I started to look for those kinds of spiritual experiences, those like epiphanies, and which can lift us out of our habitual damaged egos and connect us to this, to these, this higher power, I guess. And I wanted to know, how do we find that in Western culture? And why do we have this problematic relationship to those kinds of ecstatic experiences in our culture? We are very much a control-free culture. We put a tremendous emphasis on being an autonomous self, 
living our best life as i heard on the on the, the in the taxi radio just now like um appearing successful to uh, to others and so on so we have a real um, problem with surrendering control and we've also had um let's say 200 years of psychiatry and philosophy telling us that ecstatic experiences are mad that they're delusions and so we both yearn to go beyond our egos but we're worried if we do will we go crazy will people laugh at us will we lose our jobs or will we be able to come back to our you know our lives i wrote this book looking at how people find ecstatic experiences in western culture today and as part of that i i joined a church and um you know i i joined i i, I was dating a mutual friend of ours who's, who's who's a christian so you know it's always something about that isn't it when people <laughs> well, get love is when people get radicalized yeah love is a sort of and then and then through her through another friend of ours i met a, a guy who worked at holy trinity brompton and i joined an alpha group with with him and with nikki gumbel nikki and pippa so i got the full wattage you know, the, the full what thing. And obviously, you know, tr- really liked the Gumbles and, 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 and kind of liked Holy Trinity Brompton, even though sometimes I'd be like, you know, catch myself and the old secular me would cringe and go, what the hell are you doing? You know, and I, and I ended up converting to, to, to Christianity after I had a kind of ecstatic experience in a place called Fal de Brennan, this, this kind of highly charismatic retreat centre in Pembrokeshire. And I thought, wow, God, so I've had this ecstatic experience. I've got this kind of psychic vicar opposite me who was kind of around the retreat said, so that must mean this is all true. It must mean that, you know, not only Christianity, but his particular model of Christianity must be true. So, I, you know, and he said, does anyone here want to convert now? Which was funny because 99% of people there were well past conversion. <laughs> they were like, and I think I was the only non-Christian there. And he didn't, you know, but at the back, I raised my hands and committed my life to Jesus. So that's that, you know, that's <laughs> fully signed up, you know. And then, and then after about a year, I, the, my, my reservations about Christianity hadn't gone away. So having publicly declared myself a Christian, I then kind of like, they kind of dwindled away, the, the charisma or whatever. So that was a pretty awkward 12 months or so. I mean, painful. Mm. I very much liked in your book when you described charismatic Christianity as giving a kind of a, a kind of ecstasy that's surrounded by love, yeah. and it sort of happens on a Sunday morning rather than late on a Saturday night, yeah. which is surrounded by quite a lot of risk. Yeah. Um, and 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 to me, see, the important point about that is that it can sound as if it's demeaning Christianity, but I don't think it is actually, because what. You know, Christianity, like other religions, in a way, are kind of maps um, or, or, or points of entry or mm. um, they're kind of cultural um, access points for this deeper life, which, you know, I would call God. Mm. Um, uh, other people might call it other things. And, and for me, um, one of the, the genius insights of Christianity, which it got, I think, from the ancient Greeks, was the, was the, was the insight that Jesus embodied the logos, mm. this kind of deep pulse that runs through all of creation. Um, and again, I think one of the mistakes that Christians make today is getting too hung up on the name of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, as if if you don't quite nail it in that way, you're sort of not getting it. Mm. And um, I feel that if Christianity could sort of relax about its own language a bit, mm-hmm. um, it might actually help a lot of people discern the deeper spiritual path, mystical path, mm-hmm. um, that's not just about the initial 
sort of peak, although yeah. that can be immensely powerful and in even healing, as you're saying. Yeah. And but enables us to incorporate it into everyday life, so we can live with it longer term. Yeah. Um, that sort of this realignment from the, as you say, the ego kind of vitality, which has its ups and downs, is pretty unreliable. You know, it's useful. It kind of holds us together as well. I don't want to knock it. I'm a psychotherapist, and mm. when you see people without ego strength, it can be devastating. Mm. It really can be a horrible place to be mm. but when you can as Jung put it you can reorientate things so your ego becomes the servant not the master mm. but you need to know what it's in service of yeah. um, and to cover, recovering some sense of a mm. wider vitality in, in the cosmos and the divine is yeah. where we're at I think there's lots of I mean it's not loads but there's quite a few people like me who are definitely seeking meaning and and kind of wholeness and they're also drawn to like altered states of consciousness now and that's because of things like um the psychedelic renaissance so you know there's this big boom in in, in interest in psychedelic drugs and because of the contemplative revival but those people are tending to do it completely outside of the church and they're you know they're either going to getting drawn to like buddhism or mindfulness like secular mindfulness and then for psychedelics they're often you know they're getting drawn to like forms of paganism or like you know, imported indigenous spirituality like Amazon shamanism and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and often there's a naivety there about the, the dark side of those traditions because every tradition has dark sides. Yeah, you've written brilliantly about how ayahuasca might originally have been used to curse your neighbour rather than to bring wholeness exactly. and healing. Pe yeah. People come from New Age spirituality with this idea of an encounter with the spirit of ayahuasca being an encounter with a completely benevolent um, goddess. But in fact, in, in, in the Amazon, there's this idea that any kind of problems you have are probably because someone has cursed you. And ayahuasca will help you find that person and get revenge. You know, so that's, it's quite different to what people think. But, um, but it is tricky. I don't know if, I mean, I think, I suspect there is going to be a big revival of interest in Christianity um, because of the breakdown of the religion of progress. I think people can, um, you know, they don't need so much consolation and, and something transcendent beyond the material when materialism offers quite a good deal. Like, you know, 70 years of life and, uh, you know, your, your children will probably all live and you'll, pr you'll probably be better off than your parents and you can travel around the world. I mean, that's, we, we've had a very good deal. And so why you don't really particularly need to think about anything beyond that. But I think the next 30 years, I suspect, we're already seeing that kind of model of the materialist good life being really challenged by environmental conditions and ex, you know, emergencies. And, uh, and, and we're seeing you know, uh, quality of life go down in terms of income. We're even seeing um, life expectancy begin to go down. Um, I think we're going to unfortunately see like serious illnesses rise as, as, as it gets warmer. And of course there's going to be, you already see among some of our kind of friends, don't you, um, like in the environmental movement, for example, uh, a, a need for something more transcendent, uh, for, for some kind of hope and consolation, and that has to be transcendent hope. Um, so I suspect... Um, I suspect there will be a revival, and and I suppose I think the, the interesting thing for the church is we see that people want certainty right now. Um, they're very much drawn to people who can offer easy certainty. So I'm I bet you there'll be all kinds of 
weird charismatic movements that arise in the next kind of 30 years a bit like you know let's say in the middle ages or the reformation you know nutty movements are highly charismatic and whether the church can keep a kind of i don't know a, 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 a not not just go down that path but give people a space for like kind of grieving and and love and and, and openness to the unknown mm. i mean i think another element that the church needs to recover um, it's not disappear completely but it needs to become much more mainstream I yeah. would say is um, well putting it negatively at first is kind of getting over its own spiritual materialism because yeah. I think too the church and and peop- historians track this it's one of the things that happened at the Reformation was they lost touch with um, the spiritual dimension to, to life um, and became very focused on the imminent material dimension of life. Mm. So in the Church of England, I think it's it's fair to say that um, when it was first formed, um, it, a big task was to put the nation back together again after the Civil War. Um, a wholly admirable task. You know, Civil War is a terrible thing. Mm. But the risk is that becomes so preoccupying that it loses touch with the sense that this world is just a kind of mirror or an echo of spiritual vitality and that... Mm. Um, um, the the gift of this world um, is in our physical bodies to become awakened and alert to that which is just much more than embodied existence, mm. the sort of soul that pulses through physical existence. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the psalmist writes about um, the heavens being the clothing of God. Um, so that's right, sort of talking yeah. about something more than just the material pulsing through. Mm. And I, I really, I quite worry actually that the leaders of the church don't really have a very keen sense of that. It's, it's collapsed, rather, onto either a sort of very narrow uh, appreciation of Jesus or, indeed, a rather narrow appreciation of God in rather clunky sort of iterations of the Trinitarian belief that mm. I feel you get around that, that collapse very quickly onto sort of material imperatives um, like sort of social concern. Um, the number of sermons I've read, which uh, I've heard, which are kind of commentaries on the headlines of the last week, mm. and the, the trouble is that they're not bad things in themselves, and there are real concerns in the world we live in. Of course, mm. there are, um, but the church, I think, should be standing for something that actually is more than just that. Mm-hmm. And if we can uh, get back in touch with that more, I think that well, I, who knows? Because it's pretty desperate. I think the state we're in, but maybe there's a chance that we can actually ease up a bit on the material demands we make from life Mm. and realise that growth can be spiritual as well as economic, to put it another way. You know, that uh, that, uh, there's a kind of satisfaction of our desire um, that's not just about, um, uh, you know, consumer kinds of of satisfaction. Mm. Um, of course. Yeah, and it's very pernicious in the church because I think the church too, the Church of England, I should say, it's actually, it's very addicted to growth. You know, it, it very easily equates success with growth in numbers. Um, and uh, I understand why. You know, it's like an institution that is mm. going to become paranoid about its own survival. Um, but that is only going to spiral down, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to return to these older resources, as figures like Barfield have helped me kind of recover, um, that's, that, that can sort of take a a leap from the experience of inner life and, and the ecstatic experience, mm. but realise that that actually helps connect you to an older metaphysical view of things, yeah. to use the philosopher's word, um, but uh, 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 the city of God rather than just the city of man, to use Augustine's yeah. expression. We need, we need to know there's more to life once more, if we're, as well as doing all the practical stuff to deal with economic and problems. And I think um, 
your your friend Rupert Sheldrake. You do you do a podcast with him, and I don't know if listeners will necessarily have heard of him, but he's a kind of scientist who's very interested in spirituality, and he was quite into kind of Hindu mysticism when he was younger. But he's 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 an Anglican still, plays the organ in his church, doesn't he? And he has helped start up these initiatives like the British Pilgrimage Society, is it? Trust, Bishop's Trust, Trust. Yeah, yeah. And another website where people can find their local even song. You know, I've got lots of like friends who are like either atheist or agnostic, but they're very they're very much hungry for lives of meaning. And they love, they really um, respond to things like going on pilgrimages, like walking the Camino de Santiago or walking to Canterbury, or all kind of going to Evensong or going to visit cathedrals. Um, and so, you know, those kinds of practices which take shift people's consciousness or maybe calm them or take them deeper into themselves without necessarily saying, do you believe in A, B and C? are extremely helpful for people. Yeah, the British Pilgrimage Trust strapline is bring your own beliefs, yeah. which would be horrifying to some, but I think it's genius, actually, because it's saying begin where you are, and, take the next uh, yeah, step from and, where you and, are. And why, why shouldn't we? I mean, I'm an ag- I consider myself an agnostic now, which is not that I don't believe in God or a spiritual dimension, but after searching for it, I kind of accept that my ability to know it and to know exactly what's going on is limited. It's beyond me. I'm a human. So so I have some kinds of faith, which is like, I hope it's like this when I die, say. But it, but so I think lots of people are like that in a kind of open agnosticism. So, so I definitely can't say the Nicene Creed. And I kind of think, what, you, you definitely think it's like this? What gives you that that, that certainty? Uh, but, but, you know, not to have a go at anyone, but I'm sure there are loads of people like me so, and I was surprised in 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 the Church of England that there wasn't more um, uh, the, uh, contemplative stuff, you know, and and the rich traditions of of contemplation in 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 the Anglican Church, um, you know, like no one at my church had heard of like Thomas Traherne or even Saint Augustine. Um, so yeah, and and places to go. Like I went to a I went to a Benedictine monastery, you know, on the Isle of Wight. Um, it's not an interesting place in a way. You can go along there. You don't you know you don't have to pay anything, and they give you food and so on. But there's no there's no real practice that you can follow. You just go and listen to the psalms. I mean, this is I think what um, the Buddhists, the Western Buddhists, have brought in. It's not yeah. so much a worldview, but just techniques. Mm. Um, I mean, certainly for myself, you know, I in my uh, younger days. Um, I was actually involved with Bishop Peter Ball, um, mm. you know, who, uh, terrible story in the end. It didn't affect me in that way, but, uh, but, but when I do look back at that time and I think, how did it damage me? It didn't damage me in an abusive sense, but it did in the sense that, um, you know, we were very keen on silent prayer, but we weren't really told practically how to do it so we kind of it became this almost masochistic practice where you know if it didn't work for half an hour then you'd get up half an hour earlier and try and do it for an hour Mm. and if that didn't seem to be working then you'd do it for an hour and a half you know and of course it didn't last you know it was kind of like in the Mm. in the charisma of uh of, of the year that we, we spent living in his rectory with the kind of slightly magical feelings that were around. Yeah. Mm. Um, you could keep it up, but you couldn't in a longer term. And mm. it wasn't until much later... Well, partly I did... I trained as a psychotherapist, which, of course, mm. means learning about yourself 
big time and I really had to do that a lot so I completely need to own that mm. but I also at the same time went on a mindfulness course it was one of the longer ones it was over a three-year period rather than just eight weeks and mm. I think I was lucky just to have fallen into that because it became much more sustainable and systematic mm. um, but just what happens when you sit silently what pops up what to expect how to sort of deal with that mm. these kind of very practical things um, like learning to ride a bike. You, yeah. you, I, I don't know. Maybe you do a bit now. Maybe some Christians are putting together courses mm. that, that do that more practical yeah. stuff. And but there's a suspicion of it, like, oh, that's just imported. We're, we're aping Buddhism. Or if there's this, even a suspicion of Christian mysticism. Well, that's all, like, um, hysterical women in, in, you know, in the 17th century. But it was so basic, wasn't it? In the Middle Ages and before, it was just, it was basic, it was totally central. Like, if you're a Christian, you probably, you know, even in Christian medieval um, uh, mystery plays, for the masses, there are characters called, like, contemplatio. Um, so it was, it, was, it was standard, wasn't it? It wasn't, I, I think it wasn't, it was, it wasn't kind of outre or, yeah. like, it was just very mainstream. I think it was partly because people didn't say creeds. They couldn't speak Latin. Yeah. You know, they, uh, they didn't. Uh, um, they were much more loosely connected, I think, to church liturgies, mm. um, you know, because they would be standing, mingling around the nave while the priests and the choir were doing yeah. whatever they were doing up in the holy place. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, they were drawn by local saints, cults around wells, yeah. um, all that. So I'm not, I don't want to sort of idealise that and say it's perfect, but what it does do, I think, is make a lot more space for a kind of inner vitality. And it's much yeah. less cognitive. It's much less about what you're asserting. So, um, you know, what, 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 what should we do then? Because like, I don't think you can just wait for the synod. You know what I mean? And also, as an outsider, the Church of England seems to be everyone throwing stuff at the, 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 the leaders. And we just do it grassroots, right? Like, I'm sure there are people listening to this who are probably already, like, I don't know, doing... Julian of Norwich circles or, or that kind of thing or Meister Eckhart circles um, so we can do it ourselves can't we like try to build grassroots movements which which dedicated certain types of practice I know Anglicans who maybe train in the exercises of Loyola for example um, yeah I think that we've got to search for where there are real traditions of discernment and wisdom to kind of tap into the the subtleties or, or sometimes the overwhelming experiences of ecstasy mm. i mean i think psychotherapy too has got a lot to offer here that mm. um it's often perceived as a clinical or a therapeutic um uh, tradition which it is of course mm. it is that but i think that's only the start of it and that once your inner life as it were calms down again enough mm. um it can't stop there it's got to itself learn how to connect to these older wisdom traditions about inner life um, to uh, so that people feel they can go on a journey with it. It can become a way yeah. of living life in all its fullness um, and not just a kind of a peak that kind of keeps you going until the next peak yeah. or not or not being seen as just a kind of problem um, that you get, you know, as it were, you get sent to a psychotherapist if something's gone terribly wrong. Mm. That might well happen. Um, but nonetheless, how it can, um, its insights can become... Um, can be connected with Ignatius of Loyola. I think, in a way, Ignatius was a kind of Freud before Freud's time. Sure. And there's, I mean, like, there's the older yeah. saints like Evagrius Pontacus that there's growing interest these were in. Depth, these were great yeah. depth psychologists. Exactly. Much better than yeah. Freud. Yeah. Uh, because they knew there was Augustine. an inside to the whole world and not just inside your head. Yeah, that's the, that's gave, the key step, I think. Yeah, and they, were, and they gave us maps and methods for like deep work and deep transformation, 
modeling the metaphors we use for our inner lives and all of that kind of thing visualization practices for and they understood the power of the imagination in shaping our world right which is something Barfield talks about yeah and he Barfield picked up on the romantic traditions around the imagination where they realized it wasn't just sheer fantasy going on inside your mind that was sort of maybe entertaining but but meaningless mm. they realized that um, what happens with the imagination is that um, it can project onto the world but every so often what you've imaginatively seen comes straight back at you so you realize actually you've connected with something that's true of the inside of the whole world yeah. um, so again it's a, a lot about discernment and, and and there's a kind of training um, that can go on I mean in psychotherapy this is what people learn with in relation to dreams mm. um, at first they think dreams is kind of random noise then they get maybe a hint or two that it's got something to tell them it's a kind of like a picture of their inner states mm. and people move on from that as well they mm. they get really quite good with dreams they can sort of use their dreams a, become more a, active in their dreams it's a, it's a dialogue with the other isn't it but the difficulty is that our wishes and fantasies are also involved there so that's what that discernment is isn't it yeah. whenever we're doing working with the imagination like in dreams or visions or things like that it's like okay what is what is the soul message here and what is just my ego fantasy yeah and i think also having a big story that you can situate all this questing in is useful and there, there are many around i mean you mentioned um, the psychedelic renaissance and there's other consciousness movements around and about mm. i mean i think barfield had a particularly good one um, yeah. because he, what he enabled me to understand is how the alienation and the estrangement the ego itself has a kind of meaning it's a necessary stage um, because essentially what it does is it builds your sense of individuality so that you can participate back in divine reality sort of with a sense of awakening um, yeah. and not just being as it were blasted I think that's the the secret of the incarnation you might say is that the many and the one come together and again mm. you see it in the great mystics someone like Dante when Dante goes uh, ascends into paradise he's constantly shocked by um, all the souls that he meets in paradise, in a way doing their own thing, but it's also now the divine thing. Mm. Um, so their will and their freedom and their desire have, and their knowledge have all kind of come together. Mm. Um, so visions like that, I think, can help us, they're kind of heuristics that can help us orientate ourselves as we uncover um, these inner dimensions and, and these ecstatic dimensions. Mm. I think also, I would just say as a final thing, like, would I yearn for more connections between Christian land and spiritual land uh, as in people who are not Christian but are seeking as it were um, uh, and engaging with other traditions uh, and, uh, and, and then I guess kind of Christian land and I, 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 I just wish they were less separate those worlds and I wish they talked to each other more and I think in Christian land, sometimes they'd see seekers are like, oh, poor seekers, you know, and, and, and there's, a, there's a kind of mixture of contempt and pity for them. Um, but actually, there's, I think there's tremendous kind of uh, richness in that world as well uh, and vitality. And on the other side, in, in kind of new age spirituality land, there's often a bit of a kind of just contempt and, ig and ignorance of, of Christian land, which is a big pity too, because there's a lack of appreciation of all that tradition and infrastructure and real community, which I think is often the weak point of New Age spirituality. You know, uh, deep community, it's often quite individualized, privatized and, and lonely. Um, so we need each other because we're in a culture which on the whole doesn't even think about transcendence. 
uh, and and you know needs it and has tremendous mental health problems and all of that, but you know um, copes with that often by just taking antidepressants or drinking or stuff like that. So we need each other, these two sides, because we're co- both committed to a, I would say, a kind of not just imminent worldview, but a kind of transcendent worldview. And we may make sense of that transcendence in different ways, but like who knows really for sure. But we are we're on the same side. So I, and I think you are a great uh, bridge builder at that mark. And we need people in, in that awkward middle place uh, who don't quite belong to one, don't quite belong to the other. And I think face to face conviviality and eating together and that kind of thing is important. Friendships and. Uh, you know, we, I want to give a shout out to, we're in a group that kind of has met for like five years or so for, for occasional dinners. Very much at your initiative to start with. Yeah, yeah, and like that included initially like Toby Flint, who ran Alpha, um, Pippa Evans, who set up an atheist church, uh, you know. Elizabeth Oldfield runs the Oz. So, uh, you know, me, who's off doing drugs in the Amazon or whatever. So quite a kind of mixed group. But we meet in like, uh, in friendship, don't we? Uh, and, and we definitely go beyond the I believe A, R, but I believe B, and just try to support each other and find a common ground in that, in our, in our basic human needs. And maybe, you know, in as much as we've managed anything in that group, it's um, looking for what feels alive, what feels true, what feels vital. Um, yeah. And, you know, from a theist's point of view, from a Christian point of view even, um, if the spirit is at work in the world, then we should perhaps trust that a bit more and look for where it is working. Um, I think uh, it's hard for Christians often because they have very preconceived ideas about where the spirit should be working, mm. but maybe it's not. You know, maybe it is working in the new age supernova of spiritual experiment. I think um, so true. going there and trying to discern um, what's what's true and what can be reconnected. I mean, I, I, and I find that um, when I give talks, if I speak about Christianity, not as it were as a self-contained system that as it were comes as a full package which I think you just feel people backing off because uh, they think it's going to diminish their life not enhance mm. their life um, but when you try and present it as part of an unfolding um, of the human story yeah. that has an absolutely key place and key insights so you can it can be sort of full strength um, but just um, always keeping an eye on that which is bigger than uh, any one religion that which is bigger you know than any one kind of church yeah uh, and then people feel the expansion again to some degree at least don't uh, be yeah. too rosy but they do sense maybe there's something that can really take me somewhere I, yeah. I would agree with that I think for me a big stumbling block was the exclusivism like this is only where truth can be found and and the other traditions are in error and that that seemed obviously wrong to me so that kind of like this is our tradition this is this is where we find god but the spirit is there in other traditions as well um that is a that is a good way to go i would say yeah well we're not the only questers in the world and uh, mm. and I, I think we do also live in a moment where people are wanting to uh, not go deeper with it in the sense of deepening the experience but try and understand more kind of discern mm. more what what is this about you know, we can't just have another 1960s kind of revival again mm. um, because we just repeat the same mistakes. We need to maybe take a step on. And I know that your blog, as well as your books, mm. you know, very much grapples with that. And, and I'd hope that my own ways mm. of trying to write and think about these things, talk about these things, yeah. um, does too. I've been Mark Vernon. <laughs> I've been Jules Evans. <laughs> Thanks, Jules. It's really good to talk. Great to talk. And I've, I very much heartily... Um, 
recommend uh, Mark's, Mark's new book um, on Owen Barfield. Very interesting uh, exploration of a, of, a, of a person who deserves to be much better known. Yeah, he's someone who made a massive difference to me. And let, let me return the favour because I think your writing too uh, really grapples with uh, right at the kind of cutting edge of these uh, serious quests, but brings to, brings to bear on it the richness of philosophy, science, you know, whatever can help to understand what's going on. So that's what gives, I think, your writing a lot of vitality as well. Thank you, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.